Good morning. Good morning, and a warm welcome to everyone uh, here with us today, especially any of those of you who might be uh, worshiping with us for the first time. We gather together to learn, to question, to reflect, but above all, to share the vision of God's kingdom. Welcome. Good morning, everybody. Please stand and sing with us the mountain of God. I know uh, I probably rushed. 
rest you a little bit in coming in this morning, and that's partly because for formation we have Jamie Arcarici, who is going to be showing a movie downstairs uh, starting at 11.05. It's going to be some water and some snacks, but so we're just trying to keep things um, on time here, so thanks for coming in so quickly. Um, I think Mark had an announcement. say thank you to all of you for your incredibly generous support for the Manitoba Edinburgh Project in support of education. On the October 18th evening and uh, the bank sale on Friday, we've raised enough money to see Miguel through to his civil engineering graduation in March, uh, Gisela and Maria Belen. We have enough money to pay for their final two years of their nursing education. Uh, we have enough to pay for Stalin's uh, to support him in his chauffeur's license and to give significant economic ease and breathing space to four additional university students. And that's thanks to all your incredible, uh, beautiful generosity. And I want to say thank you. Okay, just a couple of items to run through, uh, and then I'll let you take a look at your bulletins once you're at home for other important announcements. Um, for uh, the movie this afternoon, after the service, it's called Belonging in the Body. And it is about transgender journeys of faith. Of course, that's again with Jamie Arvin reaching from Gender Spaces Ministries. Those facilitate a conversation and what it means to be Christian and transgender. Uh, you have an insert for the Grace Auction. There's a lot of write-up on there, so please make sure you take a look at that. There'll be a table at the back today. We'll start taking some auction items. If you're not sure what any of that means, please stop at the table and and ask whoever is sitting there. That would be great. And the only other one that I wanted to highlight is uh, the choir, uh, the Christmas Eve Choral Concert. So they're looking for singers, of course. That's in the back of your bulletin as well. The, the uh, practices are always on Sundays right after church, so please consider coming out to do that as well. We are gathered together in this sacred place. We are people of all ages who enter this safe space, bringing our joys and concerns, committing ourselves to explore ways of following Jesus through mission, friendship, mutual accountability, and multi-voiced worship. We are thankful for this circle that connects us. Let this time of silence gently enfold us and prepare us for worship. Here may everyday demands fall away. Here may troubled hearts find rest. And here once more, may we commit ourselves to the building of your kingdom for all people.
This morning we will be praying through Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 36, using Lexio Divina, a Latin form of prayer that allows us to attentively and prayerfully read scripture, letting the words enter our hearts, bringing us closer to God. I will read through the passage three times, leaving a time for silence at the end of each reading. As I pray, rest on any word or phrase that speaks to you. Trust that there is a reason why that word or phrase resonated with you. Then reflect on it. Ask yourself what the importance of that word or phrase is to you. Where is it leading you? Ponder it and offer your response to God. When you are done, offer words of gratitude to God and then simply rest in God's presence by focusing on your breathing. Our time of prayer will end when I say amen. Please join me in prayer. Jesus called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Jesus called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Jesus called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Amen. Uh, we're going to ask the children to come up for the puppet show. So if you want to come forward in front of the castle here, that would be great.
Good morning, everyone. Did you all have a good Halloween? I hope everyone here is good today and ready for some good trick or treats with Finn. Let's see if we can trick that dragon this morning. On the count of three, let's say George the dragon. Okay? Ready? One, two, three. George the dragon! I'm here. I'm, wait, what? Did I hear that right? Oh, Finn, I'm sorry. We were just playing a trick or treat, treat pl prank. Oh, ha ha, good one. You know, Penny, your little trick kind of reminds me of the story of Jesus. The trick or the treat part? Uh, both, actually. Both the trick or the treat part. There was a man named Zacchaeus, but he was kind of a, well, short man. And people used to make fun and play tricks on him because he was not very tall. Uh, like taking his sandal and holding it up over their heads and making Zacchaeus jump for it? Yeah, that, those are the mean, dirty tricks they used to play. Oh, oh and one time, Jesus came to town and all the people were crowding around him. And because Zac Zacchaeus was not very tall... People kept pushing Zacchaeus to the back of the crowd, and he couldn't see at all. But Zacchaeus had a few tricks of his own, and one trick was that he was able to climb trees. On the day Jesus came, there was a tree nearby, so Zacchaeus climbed it, and he could see Jesus perfectly. Yes, and Jesus could see Zacchaeus perfectly. Here's where the treat part comes in. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Hey, Zac! I see you, and I want you and me to have supper together. Treat. Ah, a super supper treat. Uh, it, uh. Exactly, but some of the people thought they had been tricked because Jesus picked Zacchaeus, and they didn't think Jesus should have supper with someone who they thought wasn't as good as them. But having supper with the most unlikely character sounds exactly like something Jesus would do. Like when he said, the last shall be first. That's pretty tricky. But it was a treat to those who are always last. Or blessed are those who are sad. Because Jesus said, you will be comforted. Jesus is sure a tricky, treaty kind of guy. Amen to that. And Jesus is always looking out for the little guy. Amen. You can go back to your parents' or children's church for kids ages 3 through grade 8. Thanks for coming. And as they leave, I'd like to invite Dennis Hebert up to continue our ongoing series of Why Are You Christians? Where is Dennis? Oh, there he is. I can't see him over all the children. Good morning. <clears throat> I was born into a Christian family and raised in a Christian community. How we are reared as children is one of the most formative powers of our lives, and it is impossible to avoid its effects. We're all given a certain worldview and belief system by our parents and community, which we simply take for granted as reality, until we soon learn that it is not universally consensual. We learn about alternative worldviews, and in so doing are forced to question our own and then either defend it, modify it, or abandon it. 
But for the most part, as Reginald Bibby wrote, the devout beget the devout, the non-devout beget the non-devout. Well, duh. Uh, 90% of Christians were born and raised as Christians. They did not convert to Christianity. So does that mean if I had been born into a Hindu family, I would be Hindu? Well, I certainly would have begun my life that way. We live in an era when many people have indeed abandoned the Christian faith into which they were born and which they once practiced. Most of them have not converted to another religious faith. They have simply become post-Christian or ex-Christian. But of course, that does not mean they have become a person of no belief or faith. They have merely adopted a different belief and faith. They now believe and have faith in atheism, humanism, or materialism. As Francis Crick, co-discoverer of DNA structure, put it, we're nothing but a pack of neurons. Stephen Hawking described the human race as just the chemical scum. Therefore, our bodies and their senses, together with their derivatives of mind and consciousness, are all that exist. <clears throat> there is no supernatural. Personally, I find that more incredible than Christian faith. Said Anthony Campbell, there is a wonderful absurdity to Christian faith weighed against the even greater absurdity of anything less. Emotionally, Christian faith reassures me that the universe is not cold and empty, that we are not alone in some vast expanse of nothingness. There is a holy other who sees and knows all. My inexpressible innermost thoughts and feelings are not unknown. Christianity also gives me meaning, security, and significance, at least more than being nothing but a pack of neurons or just chemical scum. It gives me a sense of belonging, of being loved just as I am, unconditionally, by the ultimate lover. It also it offers me desperately needed grace, forgiveness, and liberation from my bondage to sin and my brokenness of spirit. It enables me to worship what is truly worthy of worship, something which transcends all human constructions of family, nation, economy, entertainment, work, science, pleasure, and all the other altars before which we bow. <clears throat> However, just because a particular faith is emotionally comforting and self-serving in many ways does not mean it is true. Moreover, many of the positive emotional supports of Christianity can be found elsewhere in human life and relationships as well. You don't have to be a Christian to be emotionally secure and stable. But likewise, just because a belief system is emotionally beneficial does not mean that it is therefore just a delusion and not true. Cognitively, Christianity makes the most sense to me as an explanation for all of reality. Though the existence of God can never be empirically or logically verified or falsified, it's a better explanation than any other I have encountered, not that I've encountered them all equally. That God is the all-powerful, all-loving Christian God makes the most sense of what I know about human history and the universe. I'm not a rationalist who grants reason the power to be the ultimate arbiter of truth, nor am I an avid apologist for the Christian faith, but I do appreciate the rational basis of Christian faith that makes it most believable, justifiable, and warranted. Rationality is a good servant, even while it's a bad master. And the Christian meta-narrative remains the most reasonable to me. Furthermore, Christianity is to me the best explanation of the source and nature of evil. 
our human need for redemption and the means by which we can achieve it. I know it's entirely possible to construct a humanistic system of ethics based on empathy and other virtues, but I cannot comprehend why I should feel compelled to adhere to any morality at all if there is no God and if all humans are not the image of God. In the end, or in the moment, why should I be good to someone else if it costs me personally? If there is no God, why should I not exploit someone when it is to my advantage or self-interest to do so? If I have the power to do anything I want and prevent retaliation, why should I not do it if there is no God? So I have lots of social, emotional, rational reasons for being Christian, even though I'm not a model Christian. There are aspects of my person that are Christian, but I'm not exemplary of an ideal Christian. Notably, none of the reasons I've given are alone sufficient to make me Christian. I'm Christian for some combination of all of the above, plus a deep sixth sense of spirituality I feel that is undeniable. Meanwhile, I am astounded and frankly rather disheartened with the extremely discrepant at a t and at times polar opposite ways in which the Bible can be interpreted and in which Christian identity can be claimed and enacted. I'm frequently embarrassed by other Christians, though grace is a refuge from that disgrace. Still, I don't know what to do with that humili humiliation. Actually, I guess I should end that sentence sooner. I just don't know, period. But I believe in God and live in faith. I entrust my life to the Christian God whom I cannot fully or even adequately comprehend. I am, in the end, a mystic. As the indigenous novelist Richard Wagamese put it, mystery fills us with awe and wonder. They are the foundations of humility and humility is the foundation of all learning. So we do not seek to unravel this, we honor it by letting it be that way forever. Nevertheless, I'm not a generic mystic, I'm a Christian mystic. Thank you for sharing, Dennis. I'd like to ask the ushers to come forward and we'll have a time of prayer and then have the offering taken after that. Steadfast God, you are with us in our aloneness, but we express you best in our togetherness. In joy and in sorrow, we do not walk alone. May we sense your presentness among us, that we may recognize you in each other, and together know your healing, your hope, and your joy. Today we pray for people from our congregation, Betty Coop, as she continues her cancer treatments for Gary Barkman, who is recovering from surgery, for Linda Martins, that she is able to enjoy life at Bethesda Care Home, and for Florence Gertzen, who is in Bethesda. We pray for people in our community and beyond, especially for the family of Jonathan Friesen, who passed away this week, a pilot who safely flew many of us from Grace to Pongasi over the years. 
we pray for peace and strength for his family. We give thanks for all that we are for each other. May we feel loved and cared for, and may we love and care for people outside of our community, real expressions of the body of Christ. Let us share our offerings. We pray together, acknowledging the source of all we have, to return a small measure, a portion of that which you have given us, sharing it with others, that which was never ours, truly gifts, we give back from our hearts. Amen. Please join us.
Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Kings 18, verses 17 to 40. The moment King Ahab saw Elijah, he said, So it's you, old troublemaker. It's not I who have caused trouble in Israel, but you and your government. You've dumped God's ways and commands and run off after the local gods, the Baals. Here's what I want you to do, King Ahab. Assemble everyone in Israel and make sure the prophets of Baal and Asherah are there. So Ahab summoned everyone in Israel, particularly the prophets, to Mount Carmel. Elijah challenged the people. How long, how long are you people going to sit on the fence? If God is the real God, follow him. And if Baal is real, follow him. Make up your minds already. Nobody said a word. Nobody made a move. Then Elijah said, I am the only prophet of God left in Israel, and there are 450 prophets of Baal. Let the Baal prophets bring up two oxen. Let them pick one, butcher it, and lay it out on an altar on firewood, but do not ignite it. I'll take the other ox, cut it up, and lay it on the wood, but neither will I light the fire. Then you pray to your gods, and I'll pray to my God, and the God who answers with fire will prove to be, in fact, the true God. All the people agreed. A good plan. Do it. Elijah told the Baal prophets, You go first. You're the majority. Pray, prepare your oxen, and then pray to your God. So they took the ox, prepared it for the altar, and then prayed to Baal all morning long. O oh, Baal, answer us. But nothing happened, not so much as a whisper of breeze. Desperate, they jumped and stomped on the altar they had made. By noon, Elijah had started making fun of them, taunting. Call a little bit louder there. Baal is a god after all. Maybe he's off meditating somewhere. Maybe he's gotten involved in a project. Maybe he's on vacation. You don't suppose he's overslept, do you? And needs to be woken up? They used every religious trick and strategy they knew to make something happen on the altar. But nothing happened. Not so much as a whisper. Not a flicker of response. Then Elijah told the people, Enough of that. It's my turn. Gather round. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of Jacob, and built the stones into an altar in honor of God. Then Elijah dug a fairly wide trench around the altar. He laid firewood on the altar, cut up the ox, put it on the wood, and said, I want you to fill four buckets of water and drench both the ox and the firewood. Then he said, Do it again. And they did it. Then he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. The altar was drenched and the trench was filled with water. When it was time for the sacrifice to be offered, Elijah the prophet came up and prayed. O oh God, God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, make it known right now that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant and that I am doing what I am doing under your orders. Answer me, O God, O answer me, and reveal to these people that you are God, the true God, and that you are giving these people another chance at repentance. 
Immediately, the fire of God fell and burned up the offering, the wood, the stones, the dirt, and even the water in the trench. All the people saw it happen and fell on their faces in awed worship, exclaiming, God is true. God is the true God. Elijah told them, Grab the prophets of Baal. Don't let one get away. They grabbed them. Elijah had them taken down to the Kishon Valley, and they massacred the lot. When I was working as a summer camp counselor 20 years ago, one of the things that I loved to do was tell Bible stories to the kids. And I loved making those stories come alive. And this story was one of those stories. It's a story of God's power and God's faithfulness and God answering prayer. Plus, there's a little bit of smack talk in there from Elijah, which the young teenage boys appreciated a little bit. Keep shouting, maybe your God is sleeping. Elijah pouring water on the altar and then it lighting on fire is kind of like if somebody is mini-golfing. They line up for the hole there and they put their eye on the ball and then they look up at their golfing partner and say, hey, watch this. Hole in one! And on that note, Ashley and I no longer mini-golf together. <laughs> That's unfortunately a true story. But the kids at summer camp gobbled this story up. They loved it. God rules! I don't ever remember reading to them verse 40, the part where all the prophets of Baal were slaughtered. And now that I am older and wiser than when I was when I was 17, I look at this story with a bit of a different lens. This story, when I first read it a couple weeks ago, or reread it a couple weeks ago, this story feels like a fight at recess between two grade five students circling each other, fists raised. You know, I could beat you up, right? Yeah, well, my dad can beat up your dad. Yeah, but my mom can beat up your mom. But then instead of getting sent to the principal's office and their parents getting a phone call, it ends with the slaughter of hundreds of people. What is going on here? Let's go. There's an expression. History is written by the victors. Winners write history. Have you heard that before? Raise your hand if you've heard that before. Yeah. So the history of Canada from a European is very different than the history of Canada from an indigenous perspective, right? Great. So here's the thing that we can never forget when we are reading our Bibles. If we had remembered this one thing, the history of Christianity and the history of the world would be very different, and I'm not even exaggerating. Most of the Bible was written by losers. Most of the stories we read to our children were written by the losers, not the winners. They were gathered and edited and written down not by the victors, but by people who were conquered and oppressed and marginalized and sitting in jail. To summarize some of the Old Testament story in a ridiculously simple format, Israel had kind of one great moment under King David, the good old glory days. And then quite quickly, it split into two kingdoms. 
which we in Canada, we understand, especially those of us in Manitoba. We got Quebec to the left of us, we got Alberta to the right, and here we are, stuck in the middle with you. Separatist joke. <laughs> so the kingdom splits into two, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and after a few centuries, the northern kingdom is attacked by the Assyrians and is more or less obliterated off the face of the earth. And a couple years later, the southern kingdom, they were attacked by the Babylonians. They lost that one too, but the difference between the Babylonians and the Assyrians was that the Babylonians killed a lot of people, but the leftovers they took as prisoners back to Babylon. And it was, so we call it the exile. The southern kingdom were prisoners in exile for 80 years. So they were captives, they were prisoners, they were strangers, they were foreigners, they were migrants, they were displaced, they were aliens, they were victims of human trafficking, they were forced laborers. They were not winners in this. And it's here in Babylon for 80 years where the children ask their parents, why are we captives in a foreign land? Why are we not at home in Israel? And it was here in Babylon that the Israelites really started to pull together much of their story and write them down and edit them and insert things. Grandpa, tell me about the good old days. Well, little Johnny, back in the day we walked uphill to school both ways in a blizzard. Not quite like that, although I am looking forward to using that line. But they told their stories to explain who they were as Israelites and how they were different than the Babylonians and how they ended up in Babylon. And part of their story was how Yahweh, their God, was the true God and not these other gods around them. But Grandpa, how do we know that Yahweh answers prayer and is faithful and hears us and is on our side and is powerful? Oh, gather around the fire, children because I am going to tell you a story about how Yahweh beat ba Baal and how a one prophet named Elijah, just one, bested 450 other prophets. This story that we read today was written to help, to help the captive Israelites to not despair. This was their Rocky Balboa moment where the coach Mickey is shouting in his ear, you got this, you're strong, you can beat him, remember your training, remember who you are, which is also Mufasa from The Lion King, remember who you are. Remember that it's always darkest before dawn. Remember that God rescued our people from slavery in Egypt. And remember that time that God came down and showed those Canaanites who the real God was. This is a story of competing loyalties. Who are we loyal to? What are we loyal to? Whom do we trust and why? So I don't think that we today should be reading this story as one of Christianity versus Islam versus Judaism versus atheists versus the Pastafarians. I think that's kind of ridiculous. I think we are beyond the my God can beat up your God and it's okay if you get slaughtered part of the conversation. It probably was not that ridiculous 3,000 years ago when the lives of the Israelites were at stake and the ancient people probably understood, no, they did understand, that if your God cannot beat up the other gods, then your God is a loser. If your God can't win, then your God is not real. But for us now, no. I do not think that we are in a divine shouting match with other religions. Or if we are, we shouldn't be.
For us, though, the question of competing loyalties, the question of whom do we trust, is a little harder to nail down. I'm in a group chat with a few other pastors, and I bounced the story off of them, and I said, oh my goodness, this feels like Joe Biden and Donald Trump saying who's going to beat each other up. And one of them suggested that, I, that this story can be framed like this. To some degree, something similar might still hold up today, not politicians yelling at each other. You treat money as your god. You treat your own intellect or capacity as your god. You idolize power or status. Fine. How far will those things get you when life is really, really hard? The death of a loved one, the divorce of your kids, the car accident that cripples your spouse. Which god will you pray to in those scenarios? It is a harsh dichotomy, but that is the point of the story after all. Choose whom you will be loyal to, and when the rubber hits the road, who will be there for you? Will you trust in God's ways or not? Choosing God or choosing something else is what this story is about. But what about the violence? Can we just ignore it? Like, we can probably get the competing loyalties thing, but even if our idols today are money or security or power and control, most of us don't end up with the slaughter of 450 people around us. So why, in 2019, do we even bother telling these Old Testament stories that end with so much violence? For me, it's about the movement that we see. It's about telling a story that doesn't end with the slaughter of the other side. This chapter ends with the slaughter of the other side. I'm not going to pretend it doesn't. But there are other chapters. There are other stories. So, for example, the very next chapter in 1 Kings, after Elijah's great victory, we read about how he was so afraid for his own life that he wanted to die. And an angel visited him and said, go to this mountain for the Lord is passing by. Wait there. And so Elijah trumps and waits for the Lord. And then all of a sudden there's this really big wind. The Lord wasn't there. And then there was an earthquake. And the Lord wasn't there. And then there was this really big fire. And the Lord wasn't there. And then there was silence. And God was found in the silence. There's movement in this story, from violence to despair to silence to peace. And the benefit of us in 2019, and the benefit of us being Jesus followers, is that we are able to keep that movement going from Elijah all the way to Jesus. This, the Bible moves in that direction. And as Anabaptists, looking to Jesus is a legit move that we get to make. We do not worship our Bibles. We do not worship the stories in our Bibles. We worship God as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible is not the fourth member of the Trinity. We worship God and follow Jesus. And for Jesus to show up when he did and say the things that he did, love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who live by the sword die by the sword. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Victory to us now does not look like the slaughter of our enemies but rather it looks like our Lord and Savior hanging on a cross, forgiving those who just nailed him to it. There's movement here. The Bible corrects the Bible. Cynthia Bourgeau was an Anglican priest who hangs out with Richard Rohr. So she says this, like most other critically thinking Christians, I see the Bible as a symphony and sometimes a cacophony, not cacophony, cacophony, 
of divinely inspired human voices bearing witness to an astonishing evolutionary development in our human understanding of God. Divinely inspired human voices bearing witness to an astonishing evolutionary development in our human understanding of God. There's movement here. That's a paraphrase. How was church? Movement. <laughs> There's movement here. And if we forget that the Bible is moving somewhere, we are more likely to forget that we are moving somewhere too. And if we forget the stories of our past, of where we were, of the mistakes we made, of the good things that we did, and then if we, then if we forget that, then we miss out on seeing, that, seeing some of that movement. And then we forget how revolutionary some of that movement actually is. So Elijah on Mount Carmel is a story about people in captivity writing down their origin stories, trying to give hope and inspiration to each other. We still do that today, don't we? Elijah on Mount Carmel is a story about competing loyalties, and it's an invitation to ask, in whom do we put our trust? We still, we still do that today, don't we? And Elijah on Mount Carmel is a story about movement, about how God has never done with any of us, but rather is moving us as individuals and as a community to something that is more loving than we have been in the past. And that is why we tell this story today. So instead of saying a prayer to end my sermon, I'm going to invite us to sing our prayer. Our last song is called Kindness, and I think the words are closely connected to our themes of hope and trust and movement in our lives, and that we're going to sing it like it's a prayer. Let's stand, please.
go from this place in the light of love, that our lives would have meaning. As we leave here, may we remember that God, who is never confined to this church building, is in us. May we give generous expression to this wonderful gift we all share, traveling this week with the God of love, who, if we are looking, will be found in ordinary places. Amen.